Hi. Uh, since this is the final episode, I'm going to do all the credits and thank yous here at the top of the show and then let myself have the final word. If you're just joining us, early episodes can be found at mnemonicpodcast at soundcloud.com, mnemonicpodcast.tumblr.com, and in the iTunes store. A lot of people read these stories while I was working on them, and for their patience and interest and thoughtful words, I'm grateful. Dave Surrett, Stephanie Eaton, Sarah Bieberman, Christy Goldman, Daryl Morey, and probably some others I've forgotten all took time to look at some of these and offer suggestions and encouragement. Amy Reichenbach read them all. She has proofread and edited all of my books, so if you found any of them at all readable, you have her to thank. She offered the same careful eye, starting with the back half of these stories, and then worked her way to the rest. I don't think I want to write anything that she doesn't read. Jesse Thomas and Daryl Morey helped me with the music. The music in the first episodes is from a record Jesse and I made together by sending files back and forth through the email. The whole thing, Plymouth County, is available at jessethomas.bandcamp.com as well as dozens of other terrific and inventive albums he has recorded as a solo artist and as part of several different musical collectives, and I encourage you to check his stuff out. Most of the music in the back half are songs I recorded with Daryl Morey. 2016 marks the 25th year we've been making music together, so it made sense to use some of the stuff we've made over that time to score the second half. This project would not exist without Joel McKenna. What started out as a plan to write one story to group with older stories I had written seven or eight years ago on my old blog turned into writing 20 stories, an entire memoir, with her encouragement. And it was her prodding and cajoling me into finding new ways to present this to the world that led me to create this as a podcast instead of as another book. I could talk for another four hours about Joelle, so I'll just stop here and say thanks. This wouldn't have existed without you. I wrote this about my children, but I also wrote it for them. Neither of them really likes listening to me now, so I don't know how they'd want four hours of it. My hope is maybe when they're older, they'll be able to hear something in it that tells them how much I love them. And I'd like to dedicate this whole thing to my beautiful and patient wife, Lisa DiLorenzo. She has made my whole life worth remembering. Okay. Thanks for listening. This is Mnemonic. Episode 15, Genevieve. A Scottish girl showed up at my front door, selling aerial photographs of my neighborhood. I was 19, and it was my first and only day off that month, and I had planned to do nothing, see no one. But she rang the doorbell and was so beautiful, and my God, that accent. Who wouldn't open the door? She sat at her kitchen table and I asked her questions about Scotland, told her my family originated from there, told her I'd even wore a kilt to my prom. She would laugh, push the honey-gold rivulets of hair behind her ears, and lean herself forward across the table. Almost right away, I bought the framed photo, a nondescript shot of treetops cut through with the dark gray vein of street. I bought it so she wouldn't have to sell it, so she could just sit there and talk to me. And she did. She spent probably two hours, two hours she was supposed to be knocking on other doors, asking other men to buy her photos. Maybe she was tired of walking. Maybe she only really needed to sell one to make her quota for the day. Maybe she liked me. She was from Glasgow and traveled down to London looking for a summer job, and London sent her to Bridgewater, Massachusetts, and they sent her to my door. I told her I would marry her. She could stay in the country. 
She blushed, pushed her hair back again. It was always falling. In that moment, I imagined our life together and how beautiful a story would be to tell. Glasgow sent you to London. London sent you to Bridgewater. Bridgewater sent you to me. She had to meet up with the other girls out making their sales, so they get their ride back to the small apartment they were all sharing for the summer. We shook hands, and she left my life. Another story untold. I looked at the aerial photo. I was pretty sure it was my neighborhood, but it was hard to tell for all the trees, and I'd never seen my roof before. I couldn't recognize what I was looking at, but it looked beautiful. For years, I kept the receipt she handed me folded in my wallet, her name signed at the bottom, Genevieve. I'm sure it was still there on an early fall evening three years later when I found love at a ground round. It had been a shitty Monday, the details of which have escaped me seemingly forever. But I remember how low I felt, how grievously angry. Keith and I were supposed to go out after I was done with class that night, and I'd even contemplated blowing him off going home to my tiny one-bedroom apartment and sleeping it off. But I went out anyway, and I was immediately disappointed in my decision. Our favorite haunt, a trendy tavern in Norwell, was unexpectedly closed, so we drove around trying to find any place else open on a Monday night, and finally settled for a ground round, the place where kids can eat their meals for a penny a pound. We had no expectation we'd leave satisfied. Our waitress was stunning and funny, and those two things enough were to solve my bitterness. There have been few times where I felt such an immediate connection to a person. She had another table of drunken buffoons, and I did my part to put them in their place and win some affection from her. Her name, almost magically, was Octavia. It was a better evening than I could have imagined. Keith and I left her a big tip and said goodnight. We got in Keith's car. He always drove. We started out of the parking lot heading back home. Stop the car, I said. I opened the door and ran back into the restaurant. Octavia was at the register counting out her tips. I told her about my shitty day, how I hadn't even wanted to come out, and when I had, this was the last place I would have wanted to come to, but that she had made my day, my night, better. She smiled. She told me she'd had a shitty day too, and it was nice to hear that she'd made someone's day and she told me she was working the next night and that I should come back in. It was September 10th, 2001. By 9 o'clock the next morning, it was pretty obvious nobody was going to any ground round, not to eat their terrible food, not to chase down a waitress. It would have made a nice story, though. The rest of the week was horrible for everyone, and a good concert, a fun, uplifting concert, was what we all needed. David Byrne was playing the Avalon, and we all headed in, Daryl and Keith and Jess and Sarah and me. His band was lean and tight, two drummers and a bassist, and DB on guitar. He brought a string section, made up of local university music musicians, to back him on several numbers, including, as a closer, I Want to Dance with Somebody, Whitney Houston's first mega hit. And on that night, there was no irony in the performance. We were all in that room ready to sing along, to shed our cool facades and scream, don't you want to dance with me, baby, at the top of our lungs. We were right up front, and I locked eyes with the viola player, a beautiful dark-haired girl, and she smiled at me. It was a big, cathartic moment, and I shared a fraction of it with her. 
Jess was working at the Longy School of Music and thought she recognized the girl as maybe from the Boston Conservatory. So she and I spent the next several weeks attending conservatory shows looking for this violist, thinking that maybe if we could talk to her after the performance, say, hey, remember when we locked eyes during that Whitney Houston song at the David Byrne concert? Then maybe we'd have a shot. It, too, would have made a good story. I don't think Jess really knew where the violist was from. She probably saw a lonely boy with a dream and thought she could get some Mahler out of it. Katie walked into my calculus class wearing a cowboy hat and carrying a violin with a shoestring strap across her back. Joy waited for me outside a concert to tell me she liked the song I sang. Stephanie handed me an envelope full of flower petals from a gravestone. They were all good setups, but I could never stick the endings. When Jess married, only weeks before my own wedding, I was one of three friends asked to contribute to the ceremony. I gave a speech about manure that was more appropriate than one could imagine, and that was very much appreciated by Jess's stepfather, Scoot. And during the dinner, we three couples sat at one table together. One of the fiancés, the husband-to-be of an oboe player that ten years earlier I'd imagined without any solid supporting evidence would someday be my wife. Well, he was doing his best Chuck Woolery. He seemed to be putting extra effort into being charming. How did you guys meet? He asked all of us. The third couple got a little sheepish. They hemmed and they hawed. We met online, one of them finally confessed. I was happy that we, my fiancé and I, had a better story. Jess had even been there. It wasn't the story my fiancé told. Oh, I used to date one of his friends, she explained to the oboist's fiancé. In some ways this was true. That was how we first met. Oh, when he used to work at a record store, I'd go in all the time, she continued. This was also true, but it wasn't a good story. Jess officiated her weddings, and I fed her the lines. She told the assembled crowd my version of how we had met, the chance meeting, the Elvis Costello t-shirt. In my version, I am bold. There's an element of fate, kismet, of the universe putting us in the right place at the right time. My version is true. It simply ignores our earlier meetings. It ignores the near two years between the start of my story and that first night on the jetty when we first kissed. One must edit events, compress timelines, to make my story work. It's the movie adaptation version. Even when we learned years into our relationship that we had briefly lived across the street from one another when our family was waiting for their new house to be built, I wanted to view that as further evidence that the universe had wanted us together so badly it kept putting us in each other's way. The truth is this. She was a girl, and I was a boy, and we lived in adjacent towns and had similar interests, and we bumped into each other often enough that we got to like each other. I have been a writing teacher for over a decade now, and I would tell my students that that isn't a story. It's just stuff that happened, and I'd send them back to the drawing board. But each Christmas, each birthday, my wife systematically replaces a toy I had in childhood, one that my parents had given away, one that I had mourned the loss of. We've been together long enough now that it's almost like I never lost anything at all. We'd only been together a few months when my birthday first rolled around, and even then she recognized how important it was that I protect, that I rescue my childhood. And so every August and December since, she has done what she could. Together we've adopted cats who pester us in the dead of night. We've bought a house with drafts and a testy furnace 
a fence with broken pickets to better aid in children's escape. We lost one baby and raised two others. We've done the hard work of keeping them safe and warm and loved. It doesn't make a good story. It's all just stuff that happens. When I looked at my daughter only minutes old and thought about her life and the boys or girls that would find her and hurt her like the girls who had found me, who had either hurt or been hurt by, I wondered what I would tell her. How I could warn her away, protect her from all the mistakes I'd made in the search of a good story. So I talked to a lot of the characters in these stories. I sought out answers from some, forgiveness from others. I learned very little. So I wake up each morning, and one by one I stir the members of my family. I do what I can to take care of each of them. I dress the children, make them lunches, help them with their puzzles. I put my finger to my lips when I speak, hoping they will watch and learn. They will see me form the words, hoping that they will see me tell them I love them. And when my wife is home, I hope they see me tell her I love her. I hope they see me show her I love her. Maybe it's the only thing I can really teach them, that we ought to love one another. If you haven't seen me in a while, I've been busy doing this. I have no interesting stories to tell you. My days are much the same. They are small, but rich. Sometimes in dreams, though, I am floating. Above my house, the trees, above the town I've spent most of my years in, above my life. As I continue to rise, in ways, the shape of my life becomes foreign, indecipherable. In totality, it is almost unrecognizable. But God damn it. God damn it. It's so beautiful. Thank you.